0: it really explained a lot to me at least in terms of the perception that a lot of people in academia have regarding the purpose of their music within academia Um, if you want to start with like the the idea of just the academic institution kind of shielding people from criticism or at least from popular opinion then that's pretty much what the purpose of academia was other than um, <laughs> higher education. Uh, it was to create a sort of insulated system where people could do the research and, and do the music that they wanted to do without really having it uh, necessarily commercially viable. Um, and I like when Milton and I have it up here, I like it when he says that um, they're creating a commodity with which has little, no, or negative commodity value uh, and is in essence a vanity composer. Which is pretty true, you know, pretty much every composer is a vanity composer. Um, However, I would say that even the most commercially unviable things which have uh, losses can accrue commodity in the long run. You think about um, Einstein on the beach the seminal phil glass opera which basically <laughs> launched his career of being uh what he is today he was in the hole 30 grand by the time it was over by the time the first uh run of the opera finished he had to pay back thirty thousand dollars of putting it on so he had to hop in a taxi and just started working until he uh he got it paid off but it's led to him being this ginormous composer with so much clout and and staying power so i just thought that was a very interesting point that he made about the commodity aspect of music
1: yeah i would agree with that aspect of of his essay i mean in that um even if something doesn't have commercial value i would say it, it can have value in other ways um you know even if he didn't come back from that and was yeah. just continually in debt, um, that does that that doesn't mean that his work didn't have value. It just maybe didn't have commercial value, you know And that um, another right. thing what you're saying about you know universities shielding people <laughs> um, from <laughs> well. It, it creates a, a space where you can create art where it doesn't necessarily have to be commercially viable, right? Um, which I think is a good yeah. thing. I don't think commercial value is the only metric for something being good or of quality. Um, right. It's too bad that uh, it's, it's hard to sustain any kind of body of work if it's not commercially viable. At least if you live in the in the united states um mm-hmm. but yeah that's that's an interesting question there like how else like what determines quality or good art i wouldn't place it all on having commercial value but i guess that could be an aspect of it do you have an opinion on what determines good intent or quality within art music
0: Definitely. Um, I don't really have an opinion on what creates quality or what creates uh, value when it comes to art. I think the value is in both its creator and its audience, Or something that has very little um, overall uh, commodity value, like something that either does not gain a lot of money or is not very popular to a certain number of people it is something that is very uh, personal and very valued as something. Um, And it might be be popular, it might not be popular, Uh, but at least for one person, it might be their entire world and that's the person who created it. Uh, I do think that institutions implicitly apply value to something through its uh, maintaining I think that, for example, when one of the um, one of the professors at the Hart School, uh, James Sellers, when he passed away, um, he was a former professor who worked there for a long time. When he passed away, there was a four concert series uh, over the course of four nights. They have uh, a portion of the library that's dedicated to his music. So there is both personal and artistic value. In both him as the teacher, and him as the composer. And I think that that is expressed by the efforts in which were exerted in order to maintain both his music as a as a sonic form for it to be performed in concert, and as a tangible form to be maintained in a high quality standard. Uh, In terms of popularity, it's. It's only to me uh, popularity matters in the way in which it touches and connects to a overall audience. Something that I think should kind of touch an audience would be like jazz, uh, particularly more of a swing or classic jazz uh, era music. Something that really thrives on community and audience participation. Uh, either through dance or just through being active in the music. Uh, and I think that that is, of course, important if you have a live performances, that you do have an audience which is there that is engaging with the music as much as the performers are engaging with it. I think in that regard, an audience is important, therefore a certain amount of popularity is important, but not in the sense that it validates or creates value for that Musical, tangible art.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. That um, for music and certain performance art like dance, um, it kind of needs an audience um, to appreciate the the realization of it. And I think in that way, his comparison of music to like mathematics and science doesn't really fit Um, Mm -hmm. because you know it's there's not there's no real like direct comparison there's not mathematics like theater or like (laughs) Mm -hmm. um, I don't know it it doesn't seem maybe I can't put it fully into words but it doesn't seem like a the comparison fits uh, wholly fits like in some ways it applies and then also, um, things being popular in and of themselves doesn't make it meaningful or good. Like there's things that are popular. You know, um, I don't know, drugs or heroin can be really popular, or you know, various fast food um, restaurants or that sort of thing can be popular. Um, doesn't necessarily make it good. It just means that maybe it's getting uh, attention or it just happens to be really prevalent, you know yeah uh, regarding the
0: <clears throat> the attribution of music as it relates to like mathematics like he was making the comparison of mathematics to music, I do see that as. Sort of touching on the tr- the very traditional way in which music is seen, for example, by the ancient Greeks, where music is seen as one of the mathematics, um, rather than one of the human humanitarian sciences. Um, so I do see this sort of resurgence of the logical aspects of music and the, I guess I'll call the purely formulaic aspects of music, but. I do think that, and I do agree with you, that popularity doesn't really mean value because, of course, there are many unhealthy things that are popular, but do they do really little community good? Such as reality television, very popular, very, very terribly bad for you, basically, you know, visual junk food. I, I think that. One of the issues I have with something like that, with uh, well, with something like what he's talking about, is music that doesn't really have a connection with the the general public as a way of just giving up and saying that connection was severed a long time ago. Because he does talk about the fact that the divergence of music between the uh, serious music and its listeners was the result of a half century of revolutionary musical thought, which most likely was incited by the rise of serialism at the turn of the 20th century, which is very much a, uh, a way in which you can write music in a very logical way, but it really needs to be learned uh, almost like Johann Sebastian Bach you kind of need to learn how to listen to Bach. Um, Some of his music, I mean, his music is phenomenal, but some of it doesn't come easy. So in that way, I do think that one of the things he's talking about, which is that the separation between the audience and the contemporary music scene was really this result of this revolutionary thought where it was just uh, severed the connection but it's the fact that there's not even an effort to try and remedy that which i think is very much to the detriment of both the composer and the audience
1: overall yeah i I agree with with all that you know i think um even within the title you know who cares if you listen just gives kind of the the front of kind of like an apathetic kind of outlook on it just like giving up you know Mm -hmm. um that yeah maybe resulted from all those things that you were saying you know just like and also you know having only his colleagues show up to these these concerts and that sort of thing so it's just maybe led to his kind of apathetic like not caring about or trying to reach um, an audience you can have complex work and then maybe just try and by just shutting that down, you're not trying to open it up to more people. You're just like shutting it down like it doesn't matter if you get it or not, because you're not important. The audience doesn't matter. And it, it kind of it, it disregards um, I think the audience is important within within music because yeah the realization of it, you know, you have a performance and there's performers and they perform it in front of an audience. Um, so it plays a role in the performance and the realization of the music. I guess it de- it would depend on the piece. Like if, if it's just, if he's working purely like theoretical and just coming up with like theories and doing, um, writing books and academic papers, I guess it doesn't matter if it's, hmm. it's performance or not. But yeah, that, that was my initial contention with it, I guess.
0: Yeah. Yeah. You know, I'd like to jump on that um, idea that you put forth that sense of apathy and that sense of um, with the audience. Uh, And I think the one thing that he really addressed was that specific type of audience which wants to create a sense of value or attribute a sense of value to the music through either a uh, critique of it or an analysis of it or just something that makes them define whether or not it's good or whether or not it's valid. Uh, I do have an experience with this. Uh, as I was leaving a concert of Brahms, one of the pieces they had on the program was this horn trio, which is a wonderful, beautiful piece. Um, but in this case, the horn trio was not performed with the traditional instrumentation. Uh, this performance of the horn trio was with a viola instead of the horn. So it wasn't even a horn trio. (laughs) It was a viola (laughs) trio, I guess. Uh, But it was, it was fine. So that was just one part of the program. It was fine, whatever. So I was leaving the concert hall and I just happened to hear this conversation between two people. And one of the people uh, made this statement that just blew my mind uh they were talking to the other person they said you know the thing about brahms is that he was never really writing for a specific instrument and i i had the sensation to strangle somebody uh (laughs) but i let it pass (laughs) you know just because one why call something a horn trio if you're not writing it for a horn trio but two the idiosyncrasies of that specific piece can only be realized by not just the horn, but the natural horn, something that Brahms wrote for in not just the horn trio, but in his symphonies. They're all written for natural horns. It's just that modern practice uh, wants us to perform them on valved uh, horns in F. Yeah. So the the amount of information that this person had was slightly more than the unaware individual who doesn't know what Brahms is but far from the learned position of somebody who would know that Brahms was definitely writing for a horn. He was definitely writing for the horn trio with a natural horn. And it's that distance that I think uh, Milton Babbitt was talking about that idea of saying, uh, and in fact, he even said, (laughs) there are two, topics which everyone feels like they are entitled to talk about like they're experts. The arts and politics, which is so true, because everybody feels like they have a valid opinion about the arts, just like they have a valid opinion about public policy. Which nobody except policymakers and, you know, professors of constitutional law and nobody but they they have even a semblance of an idea of how policy is made. Just like those of us who don't really study certain styles of music can't really go up to somebody who makes it their life work studying that style of music and say, yes, that wasn't good because X, Y, and Z. And I think that that is one of the main causes of his uh, annoyance with an audience is not just those that don't really know about modern music, but those that think they know enough about modern music to give a critique on its value and its validity as a piece of art, which they are not qualified to do.
1: Yeah, yeah, there's a lot of stuff in there that I agree with. And I think it was one of the things, kind of going off what you mentioned about people not being an expert or even familiar with a certain area and giving value judgments on it and it was like um i forget how the wording went but it was um someone could just say oh i don't like it and therefore it wasn't good and Mm, consider that being valid a valid criticism you know which (laughs) yeah um i yeah I, i totally get that you know i've experienced that from people in real interactions, just talking to people saying, Oh, I don't, I don't like that. It was just, and then, you know, they'll go on because they're not necessarily educated about it. They'll, if you press them on it, they'll invent, you know, reasons. Like it sounds like they're trying too hard or something or something yeah. like that, you know? <laughs> um, so I totally get that, that feeling too, which I, I don't know if that happens in other areas, but probably not as much trying to think of an example what that might even be Um, (laughs) you mean like a non-musical example or something that's not in the arts or politics that people uneducated would just give their opinion on it or like judge it offhand Um, my thought kind of goes to uh, religion and philosophy Um, Mm. but
0: yeah I I, I definitely think
1: that can uh,
0: be attributed to people who don't study something like uh, different religions and yet attribute uh, personal value based on it. Uh, My example would have been food. Mm. Like if they go to a restaurant and they eat something, they don't like it. That means it's not good Mm -hmm. or something, um, especially if it's from a different culture. Uh, And I I definitely see in that example where there's so much information about be a religion or food or just, a cultural aspect in general, where you need to kind of learn more about it in order to first appreciate it, and then even if you don't really like it, you can always just attribute that to just it being different, not it being wrong or being incorrect.
1: Yeah, it's it's related to things that are subjective. You know, um, mm-hmm. I've been thinking about this for a while, and I, I don't, I can't pin anything down within music or arts that I could objectively say is good or of quality. Mm -hmm. Um, Other than some kind of vague, you know, reference to patterns and patterns being enjoyable. um, And you recognize that patterns are within music and art, but not all patterns are enjoyable um, or that significant. You know, you can recognize a pattern in like A sound a refrigerator makes or something or a fan you know yeah um but yeah it's ultimately subjective i think
0: um yeah i've had that same experience studying uh form and analysis and analyzing either small pieces of music or larger pieces of music which have a very logical construction to them starting with motives and themes that get transformed and extrapolated on throughout the course of the music Yes, that creates a cohesive element to the music that is very logical and very interesting to kind of piece together and pull apart, but that doesn't really validate anything as being good or not. And if anything, it it has the capacity of, um, of invalidating something that doesn't have that. Uh, certain styles of music are not really built on motives and themes that reoccur from time to time Uh, many styles in fact what we have in western concert music being minimalism that's usually not thematic in a way which has uh, recapitulations and developments of materials usually that's just one idea that is elaborated on over the course of you know a whole piece but that idea might be like timbre or a certain rhythm so i do think that it's very difficult to validate something as of quality or good without invalidating something else as something of lesser quality
1: or isn't good. Hmm. Can you give an example of that?
0: Yeah. I usually go about analyzing music in a way which says this music isn't good or bad. It just is. Uh, That is probably something that I've learned over the course of my, now nine and a half years of music academia, which is Mm. much longer than I thought I would ever spend studying music, but it gives me that sort of um, indifference to not say Beethoven is phenomenal because he uses motives that are transformed in interesting ways, which is is interesting. Uh, But I don't see Beethoven's use of motivating thematic materials to be any more or less valid than the music of Duke Ellington and his use of uh, dissonant vertical harmonies and interesting timbral elements, especially with his use of brass mutes. Uh, I don't think that any one element that they have is better or worse than the other. It just is. It's all the total package. And these are, of course, both in a more westernized concert music form. Though, of course, Duke Ellington had a lot of Eastern and Latin elements in his musical style. So I think that it is hard to try and validate something as good or as artistically valid um, just because to say something that's good is very is very much an opinion. And rather it's better to just say, here's a concept that they use and here's how they use it. And then to analyze that as saying, okay, that's consistent and that creates this sort of effect. And that's really interesting.
1: I think if you compare it to um, music is a language and it's depends on their intent and what they're trying to communicate um, styles Different styles um, could be like different, um, I guess, like different languages, um, like English and Spanish. Like, you know, they can be related. But if you're thinking, if you're only familiar with English and someone's speaking Spanish to you, it's not going to make a whole lot of sense. Yeah. If you're not familiar with the style and the genre and the the things that they do, it's not going to make a whole lot of sense or won't be easy to understand. Um, There's probably words you could pick out and things you could understand from their body language and like the way it's spoken. Um, Also thinking it in that way, no sentence is like good or bad in and of itself, it's just communicating different things. Mm -hmm. And different music is communicating different things also. But yeah, I agree that if you say one thing is good, then something else would have to be not good. Otherwise, it doesn't mean anything, you know.
0: Yeah, um, I think it's, um, I think it's more like <clears throat> uh, composer X is good because they use this technique. Therefore, somebody who wants to be good should use that technique, hmm. um, which is not really, if you look at, or at least shouldn't be, if you look at um, analyses of. Beethoven or Brahms or anything they shouldn't give elements of opinion they could say here's what I think the composer is doing here they shouldn't really say this is good because they use these styles and these aspects of musical composition just because uh just as language uses or doesn't use certain things so too does music of different cultures and different regions use and not use certain things. You you can't really study harmony in West African percussion. That's just not how we analyze that sort of contrapuntal style that is rhythmic, uh, but has no vertical harmony. So you can't really say, um, Bach is good because it has logical vertical harmony you you can note that but by saying that Bach's musical harmonic language makes it good it's kind of implicitly saying that styles that don't have that could not be good
1: you know you know I find this just reminds me of this that this is a thing that I find interesting as I was research. I was looking at um Anthologies is documentation of 18th and 19th century Native American music and songs, hmm. and they make notes about how they're, uh you know, everything is is documented within uh, Western notation system because that's what they used. Yeah, and they make notes about how it's it's not really sufficient to to document all the qualities of the music because it's it's a different culture and you know there um certain pitches they don't fit within equal temperament there's like scent deviations and um it talks about how they have like crying songs so they use it's really like a timbral thing where it, it sounds like they're crying a lot yeah and then there's um archival recordings you know taking on uh the wax cylinders of that time which <laughs> is uh It's really kind of interesting to read about and hear about, you know, it's um, I'm sure things got lost in translation of trying to document it within the Western notation.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, um, honestly, a lot got lost in translation, even in the Western world of music notation, a lot of things in the, um, in the Renaissance Baroque and even up to classical eras, in performance were taught to the performer and not written down in the music. And yeah, we know how like figured bass works, but when we learn that, oh yeah, we have N harmonic equivalents where an A sharp equals a B flat. Yeah, and you know, unless you look way back and to the point where no, they were two different notes because <laughs> yeah. they had a concept of tuning that was based on the division of the whole note or the whole step being in, in nine parts. And there's all this, um, all these idiosyncrasies that get pushed away because one, we have a tonal system now that is based on equal temperament. And two, we have a tonal system now and a, a pedagogical system that is based on the piano. So whatever the piano can do, is what is taught to the students. And the piano can't do the, uh, the microtonal intervals of which we, we would consider microtonal. And they also can't do like the blues note in uh, blues and jazz where it's half between, the, I believe the fourth and the flat five Yeah, it just, it can't do that. But that's how we teach it. So it there's a lot lost in translation even in our own musical trajectory that you must even think that even that's difficult to try and codify it, let alone from completely different cultures, uh, to try and put bar lines on percussive styles of music from other cultures. They don't have that sense of bar line, you know, cause a bar line means divisions of beats and emphasis on certain uh, parts of the meter. And that concept is you know
1: it's very western the the idea of you know separating everything with equal divisions of of the octave and of the beat you know mm-hmm. um it's interesting um also harmony and, and rhythm are very much related the overtone series and different rhythm divisions and how they're related and i think you can equate you know the same ratios like mm. three to two is a fifth three to two a triplet has to me, the same kind of feeling that a fifth would have, you know, a dominant rhythm to like leading back to. Um, so, for example, like a quarter note and then like a triplet. Um, yeah. A triplet, uh, eighth note triplet, leading back to a quarter note, would be like moving a fifth up, and then quarter note triplet back to regular quarter notes would be like a fifth down, mm. kind of. And when I look at. I've analyzed, like, a few different scores, and I see that kind of relationship of landing on, like, a strong beat. It often will have that rhythm in there, the 3-2 relationship, whether it's a dotted rhythm or an actual triplet. Um, So I find that Mm -hmm. pretty interesting. I wonder if there's uh, other, like, equal kind of comparisons you can make with other different cultures-type music, you know, with, like... uh, different cultures with different, um, tuning scales, for example, would have different common rhythms that they use. Um, I'm not sure. I don't know, but
0: yeah, I definitely find it interesting to look into that, but I can also say that that was something prevalent in, uh, Western music before the establishment of tonal structures, where when you learn about the modes, the church modes, you wouldn't really learn about the intervallic concept of the mode. Like we, we learn about modes mostly in terms of uh, being relative to the major scale and having a certain collection of whole steps and half steps that create the mode. But when you were learning it 800 years ago, you would learn the shapes and the uh, melodic contour that would accompany that mode you would learn basically a melody to accompany the mode itself so in terms of ratios um i I would have to really go into like you know pre-tonal music of the of the medieval era which i'm definitely not an expert on i'll tell you yeah uh but i will say that there's a lot that we definitely take for granted in terms of how much is just ingrained within the natural elements of music versus what is definitely been codified in music.
1: Yeah, another thing, speaking to the modes and stuff, again with when I was researching and looking at different Native American songs from the 18th, 19th century, the songs themselves, um, and it was often just one melody that was uh, transcribed, looked very modal to me. Um, Hmm. I don't know if that's how they thought of them. Yeah, they looked modal to me, which I think is interesting. And also they had songs for like all their daily activities, you know, and the songs for when they would go to battle, songs for harvest, songs for, they're basically always like singing and had songs Hmm. for everything. And, you know, these ceremonies where they would, these seven day long or however long ceremonies where they would sing and go dance and then Yes, it's very interesting. And that also kind of reminds me of um, what I've heard about ancient Greece and Rome and how they would sing and when they would be teaching about history, mathematics or other things. I don't know. Maybe that's just like a human thing that's common within all cultures.
0: Yeah. And it would seem like that as well is one of the biggest elements that differentiated music of the past from this type of Western art music that sits in a, in a concert hall where you sit in there, you act like you don't exist by not coughing, you know, not breathing, not interrupting the music is yeah. the extrapolation of music from life, you know, because even, even nowadays, music is ingrained in our everyday life, be it something that we wake up to with our alarm if we're um, amateur uh, shower singers then, or if we're singing our children a lullaby, or if we're singing in the car, there's music that's ingrained in our life that is inseparable to the uh, mechanisms that have us go from task to task. And it's that sort of thing, which has definitely been taken out of Western culture is the idea that music is something that just everybody does all the time just to be uh, alive. I mean, to think about that, (laughs) there are two things I thought about when you're saying um, they have songs for when they um, go to bed, songs for when they um, go out. I was thinking first of uh, military bugle calls, those that tell you when to get your mail, when somebody's died, (laughs) when basically calls that, are signals to tell the entire camp or the entire brigade. And then secondly, work songs of like the chain gang of just things that that just get you through the day, you know, uh, keeping spirits alive when things are bleak. Uh, and I think that that is one of the worst things that comes about with this sort of uh, highly abstract music that doesn't really have a connection to our everyday lives is a, yes, we should be able to go somewhere and just focus on the music, but that's not going to happen every day. And mm-hmm. it's sure, it really is happening less and less. So I think the, just one of the main things that did happen is that artists said, this is my music. It's over here. And then life itself is over there. And that's the way it is.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I, I, mean, um, I love the comparisons and everything you're saying about about that. It's I feel like it's totally true. Going, I've definitely experienced that too. Going to certain, it's usually a classical music concert or a contemporary classical music concert, where it's it has the feeling of being almost like going to a museum. It's like very <laughs> sterile. You know, you're expected to sit there and like not move and be quiet. You know, the whole time yeah um which i mean also on the other hand sometimes i do just enjoy sitting and listening to music you know it's different than being like at a rock concert where everyone's screaming and <laughs> you know maybe you list you miss like certain parts because of that but you know it's a different experience i also like the atmosphere at certain rock concerts i like the atmosphere just of sitting and listening but not necessarily like the stuffiness that some people have um, I think goes too far. Um, or I, I remember once I went and saw the San Francisco Symphony, and um, I was sitting next to this person, and like I, like, shuffled or something, like, barely even audible noise, and they just, like, looked and, like, scowled, like, you know. <laughs> like, yeah. And it was like, really? Like, <laughs> you know, is that
0: really worth doing and that that sort of stuffiness is really a modern phenomenon that i think is part of the turn of the 20th century which is that idea that you are not a part of the music and you are not a part of the experience
1: Hmm.
0: when concerts happen people talk during the music you know (laughs) it's even funny where if you had um a multi-movement piece and the audience really liked the movement they'd play it again. They'd just repeat that movement. (laughs) like It was just like a, a, what do you call it, a standing ovation. Uh, So the culture of really separating the audience from the music is very much a concert mentality that is very modern. And it's inflicted on music that it wasn't written for that. And I definitely blame Beethoven for that. I think that... uh, (laughs) And not just for the fact that everyone now is under the impression that this this is a masterpiece and we need to give it the room to breathe and the room to live, but also that notion that um, new music, music that's uh, created in the past 100 years isn't worth listening to. Because after Beethoven, the amount of new music that was on concerts was slowly dwindling. And the amount that was being put on old music was growing. And of course, now you see where the uh, the composers before the 20th century are the ones that dominate the program, especially for symphony and symphony orchestras, operas too. Um, and that I think really began with Beethoven in that sort of idea that you can't really get better than this. <laughs> So you just, you play the old pieces and then into the 20th century, we have this idea that this thing is worth the entire world stopping in order to listen to every part of it. But whether or not you're, you're listening or just hearing with style, that is something to really be contested.
1: Yeah, definitely. In a way I think commercialism is largely responsible for, those things that you're saying, like, you know, Beethoven and just, you know, in general, like performance venues performing the same repertoire over and over and over again, because it's has commercial value, what the people want, quote, unquote. Yeah, <laughs> Maybe that's tied in with the separation from the audience and the music. I'm not sure. It's, it's definitely, I don't know if it started necessarily with Beethoven, but it definitely Milton Babbitt in his essay reaches the extreme of that. That sentiment, you know, of separating the music and the audience,
0: especially on that note that you made on
1: um, commercialism. Beethoven's been
0: dead for almost two hundred years. He's not two hundred and fifty years old. He does not need a two hundred fiftieth birthday.
1: He's yeah. dead.
0: He is. <laughs> he is dead. He is more dead than most composers that are on the program. So I don't know how many ways you need to celebrate whether Beethoven is was born or he died. Or whatever piece you focus on, like, oh, this his Symphony No. 9 is now 200 years old. Well, yeah, eventually everything's X amount of years old. You know, (laughs) get over it, people. (laughs) If you play Beethoven, then play Beethoven. But it's that idea of commercialism. You're celebrating the 250th birthday of the birth of Beethoven. As though you needed another reason to play Beethoven. You already do that, anyways.
1: <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> so yeah, it's irritating, you know, especially if you read about how that really wasn't the case, you know, back in whatever century. I don't know when that became really standard of playing Beethoven and all these things. A very limited repertoire.
0: I think for for Beethoven, he's just uh, been a mainstay in the um, orchestral repertoire. I think for certain composers like uh, Johann Sebastian Bach, he did need a revival. <laughs> a revival, he, he needed somebody to revive his music and revive playing it. Uh, mostly I think it was Mendelssohn who um, edited some of his music. And then I know Brahms uh, played a lot of his music uh, or had it at least studied a lot of it. I think that just like Star Wars, Beethoven is now either Beethoven is Star Wars or Star Wars is now the Beethoven of uh, film is that you just have this one thing that's zero risk and you Mm -hmm. say people enjoy that. Let's just do it again. Let's just make another one. Let's just have another season of Beethoven. We had it before. It was terrible or not. We we can't tell anymore, but (laughs) it makes money and it keeps the lights on. So let's just do that. But I'd like to address one thing, uh, with Milton Babbitt's article. And that's that there's not really a lot of room that he made for anyone other than in this field of music, which is Western concert music or, Mm. european art music or whatever you want to call it he really made room for himself to do what he wants to do and that's pretty much it because if we because we talked about native american music and uh african music and you can even talk about other cultures like balinese music the the connection between the music and the culture isn't inseparable you can't have a concert of West African percussion, I mean, you can, but it doesn't capture what it is. It's part of the life. Native American music was part of the life. So if you separate that from the culture, then it loses something that you can't really get back. Even if you have a program that says, oh, this music is meant to capture the, the day going by and this one's supposed to capture this and that, it needs to either be adapted into the concert or it needs to exist in, in the exact circumstances where it came from. And I think that that is something that Milton Babbitt obviously doesn't really care about. <laughs> I don't think he cares at all about music of other cultures. He might, I'm not, I'm not an expert on Milton Babbitt, but I'm sure he's not, you know, John Cage or Henry Cowell in there. Yeah. uh, emphasis on eastern music and philosophy
1: yeah
0: but i think that one of the side effects of this sort of thinking is that it gives people the ability to just say here's music quote-unquote and then there's everything else Mm -hmm. when in reality it's very much a gray area and sometimes not all music can fit into the concert realm in the way that others can.
1: Yeah. And, you know, even even Milton Babbitt's music or music that's, you know, comes from these universities, that's a culture too. Um, mm-hmm. I think I would agree with what I think you said is that you really can't separate it from a culture. If you did, you know, it just has the feeling again of like being in a museum, like <laughs> you're looking at, which can be cool in a way, but it's also, you know, you're looking at something through glass, you know, don't touch it, like don't interact with it don't enjoy it yeah (laughs) just to sit and observe it and be quiet and then you know go home yeah um it you know it stays in the museum it doesn't go with you um (laughs) i'm not sure i exactly got what you mean what you meant when you said um i think you used the example of native american music but you said something like it needs to exist how it was or be adapted in some way
0: yeah Um, um What I meant is that if this sort of music has a practical purpose, um, be it to alert somebody or to just give a message to something within a culture, then it really serves itself better if it's observed in the circumstances in which it is, which is in a Native American community where it began. I'm just thinking about, like, Steve Reich and how he studied West African music, but he didn't just take West African drums and West African rhythms and just start pounding on them and calling it his music. He tried to adapt some of the sensibilities of West African percussion into like his early pieces, like drumming Uh, in a way. And same with uh, Balinese gamelan too. He didn't try and uh, mimic that he tried to adapt some of the ideas in which were in it in a way that he felt could be part of his style because he was a percussionist as well. In that regard, I think that music that is cultural needs to either exist in the culture or be assimilated into another culture where it is mixed with something else in order to have like that connection. Like, Latin jazz you know take Latin rhythms and um, maybe some Latin instruments and mix them with uh, American and Western instruments and you have something new which has its foundations in both cultures but is a new thing
1: mm. yeah I think I got what you're saying there's that element if you just um, you know if you just try and imitate it you know like with Hollywood or like Bollywood music it just feels kind of inauth- inauthentic you know if you're just like oh there's tabla it's it's indian music now you know it, it doesn't matter that it's <laughs> yeah. still in four four or like you know common western chord progressions it's just like oh it's, it's indian now it's like <laughs> it's uh kind of like a hollywood kind of cheesy effect that that creates yeah um so i think i agree with you on that all these little songs are just like very human i think i find them interesting you know, I remember there was this person that like lived in a trailer, on uh, in my old neighborhood, and he would go out and walk his dog every once in a while. So the neighborhood that I lived on, it had an industrial street kind of going into the – You had to drive through this industrial area going into the neighborhood, and he kind of parked his uh, mobile home on that street in the industrial area, and I remember just walking down street one time i hear him singing like this little song about his dog you know i love my doggy, and she loves me (laughs) it's just i just thought that moment was so hilarious um i uh like i went home later and like i transcribed it like i wrote it out (laughs) and then i i kept it like you know in a file somewhere and then um i used that uh to write a piece for a, later on for like a solo trumpet. It was just so I just thought that that moment was just so hilarious. It was just, yeah. just like this is just uh what it is to be human, I guess. <laughs>
0: and it, it um, seems like such a personal moment that you kind of just stumbled on like he wasn't yeah. doing it in a way which was for anybody. It's just for himself and his dog, whatever yeah. their name was. <laughs> I, I actually think about that sort of um that sort of element to somebody's music of like how personal and intimate it is uh which i don't think is attributed to beethoven i don't think Mm -hmm. any of his music is very like um intimate it's not really something that you would would inflict on somebody else you know um but somebody like chopin who i imagine just like sitting in his room or sitting in a very intimate salon area, either playing or improvising, uh, that's something that to me probably should be captured within a musical performance, um, which would be kind of kind of difficult if you have like a, a concert where the pianist is 20 feet in front of you in a large concert hall. It'd be kind of hard to get capture that sort of personal aspect of what I think of as Chopin. But with, mm-hmm. with Beethoven or Brahms, you kind of have to be really far away because a lot of his music is very loud and very, uh,
1: violent. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Uh, Japan is very, um, very romantic. It feels like it was probably very intimate and personal. It's, it's interesting when I think about that thing, the, um, the man with the dog, because it's like, <laughs> did did i did i steal this person's personal moment in his little song um i don't think of it that way i think of it just like this is just kind of a human experience it was a moment that he wasn't aware that i was gonna hear that and go (laughs) write it down and then (laughs) tell a story about him but you know that i'm sure happens every day you know you have interactions with people at the store they might you know go tell a story about you later and you would never know or Think of them again, or even remember what they look like. Um,
0: or even more crazy, if they're writers and they make a whole character <laughs> based off of you, and you never know it.
1: Yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah, I guess that's part of being human in the human experience. Um, yeah, it's interesting. Um, you know, I think about uh, in medieval Europe and stuff, and how they didn't really um, didn't uh, people didn't used to like ascribe ownership to things as much. Yeah. like, you know, the people that would, you know, copy down or or write pieces, even compose new, like church music wouldn't even write their name on it. You know, just be, it just belonged to the the community, I guess, or the mass, the, the uh, super organism existence. Yeah.
0: And now uh, thanks to Mickey Mouse, you not only (laughs) own something for your lifetime, but then 70 years after your lifetime and then you, you know, can sell it to some, some other entity and then they own it for a certain amount of time
1: yeah yeah man i wonder how long that's gonna last it has to i don't know maybe it'll be gone forever maybe mickey mouse will never enter public domain (laughs) (laughs) there'll be some loophole that's like perpetually created to so you can disney can continue to make money off it forever i don't know yeah